Amen. Well, thank you, team, for leading us this morning in our worship through singing and song. Uh, so thankful for uh, just the many um, that have been gifted in that way, and then many others that serve in various other ways on uh, a Sunday morning and make a uh, service like this possible. Um, so thankful for um, for all of them, and I'm thankful for you. Um, I. Uh, um, didn't have a mic earlier, or they didn't turn my mic on, so let me, um, now that my mic is on, let me just express my appreciation for, uh, for you, and uh, thank you so much for um, just the appreciation that has been expressed, um, not just today, but um, in other ways, other times. Um, I mentioned this on uh, Sunday evening at our ministry team summit, which was a lot of fun, um, but uh, one of the greatest joys, um, privileges that I have is, is getting to um, be um, a pastor here at City on a Hill, and so thankful for all of you. My wife and I um, remark all the time as we leave services, as we leave events, as we even just leave times of hanging out in homes and, and um, small group and other, other times, how thankful we are for this church body and for, um, and for all of you. And so um, it's a joy to, uh, to be able to uh, pastor, but it's a joy to be able to serve alongside you and to uh, be able to uh, minister with you. And, um, and uh, yeah, I just consider it a real, real joy and a real pleasure privilege and uh, love all of you so uh, so dearly. And um, excited to uh, get into God's Word this morning, so let's do just that. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you, uh, you can open that up and turn to the book of John. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we've got one that you can use. There should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Uh, you are welcome to take that out. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, that is uh, our gift to you. You're welcome to take that home uh, with you. We are in a series that's going to take us the better part of a year. Um, and I know even in saying that, some of you are like, man, this this is, uh, it's going to take a while, and it will, uh, but I think already we're seeing that there's something really special about walking slowly through the Word of God and, and, and doing so in a gospel and getting to see week after week after week Jesus for who He is. And uh, we're calling the series Life in His Name. Um, that uh, title is not original to um, us or anything creative that we came up with. That's the purpose that John wrote his book for, uh, his gospel. It says in the um, uh, last, uh, last of the book, it says that I have written down these signs, I've recorded these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, you will find life in his name. And so that's what we're um, looking at. That's what we're um, receiving this morning is um, we're getting to watch and observe some more of his signs and to see what he has done and who he is. Is And uh, this morning, um, we uh, are looking at a passage where um, Jesus shows up on the scene and it is clear who is the boss. Um, I don't know about you, but when um, you know, I'm at a uh, work, workplace and the boss shows up, things kind of change a little bit. I've shared before that I, um, I uh, used to work construction. Um, that's how I kind of, I started in high school and that's how I paid my way through school was uh, doing home construction. So framing, roofing, drywalling, um, all sorts of cabinet making, like just tons of different sort of things, worked for a lot of different contractors, a lot of different times. And I got to tell you um, that on a construction site, when the boss is not around, um, sometimes, not all the time, not everybody, um, but some, some, of the, some of the people on the site uh, don't act the same way. And they're a little bit looser, a little bit more casual, a little bit more uh, kind of flippant, or um, that pace just isn't quite the same when uh, the boss shows up, which I mean, he had to do supply runs sometime, right? So like he's going and getting supplies where I was like, hey, when are you going to work, right? Like, 
That's, that's like, yeah, that's 18-year-old Dave talking there. Like, didn't understand how much goes into all the other parts of the job. But, um, you know, boss shows up and, and, uh, and then all of a sudden that pace ups, right? People start picking up. They're going faster. It's like, wait, when, where was this like 15 minutes ago before uh, the boss showed up? Because things change when the boss, when the authority is around. And um, they don't know it, but the people of uh, Israel are gathered at the temple and they're there for worship. Uh, they're there for the Passover and the boss shows up and some things change. Um, they don't recognize or understand that he's the boss, but um, he certainly is. And he has some things that he wants to instruct in and change and see, um, uh, see different uh, because he is there. This morning, we're talking all about worship and it's the worship that's happening at the temple. We're calling the sermon uh, this morning, the worship God's way. Um, worship God's way because God has a way that he wants and desires us to worship. And that way is not always uh, immediately or naturally the same that you and I might have. The way that you and I might tend to worship or be prone to worship might be different than the way that God intends us to worship. I don't know if you recognize this or know this, but all of you, every one of us, were created to worship we have a desire, a capacity, um, this drive for worship in our hearts. And we were made to worship the creator that made us. That's where it ultimately finds its uh, purpose. And that's what we were designed to do. Yet we uh, tend to find a lot of other things to worship or a lot of other ways to worship. And so what we want to do is we want to come back to God and come back to his word and come back to his authority, and we want to worship in the way that God intends us to worship. If we are made to be worshipers, then we should want to worship in the way that God intends. And what we're going to see in the passage this morning, I just want to kind of give it to you before I, I show you um, in, in the text that we have, but I, we like to do this because it helps to sort of direct our thinking and our understanding but the big idea of the passage this morning has everything to do with a proper submission to authority. So it's this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. This is our big idea this morning. It's that a proper submission to Jesus' authority in my life produces a proper worship in my heart. When there's proper authority in my life toward Jesus, then there's proper worship that results in my heart. And so if we want to have a proper worship, if we want to worship God's way, then one of the ways that we do that or I would say one of the primary ways that we do that is we understand Jesus and his authority and we look at and ask the question, are we submitting to that in our lives? That's what we're gonna see here. That's what the people of God were challenged to do. So let's get into it. Let's get into God's word this morning and hear from him um, in his word. If you're following along in your copy of scripture, you certainly can do that. We'll also put it on the screen, but let's read along together. Um, you can follow as I read in John chapter two, beginning in verse 13. It says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here's the uh, first way that Jesus changes and affects our, uh, brings about that proper worship. It's this, submitting to Jesus takes the focus off of me. When I submit 
to Jesus' authority in my life, it takes the focus of worship off of myself. That is what was happening here. The worship had become about the people, not about the God they were worshiping. One of the things we like to do is we kind of work our way through the text. We ask, what does it mean? Or what does it say? What does it mean? And how do I, how do I apply it, right? What do I do? And so let's understand some of the, um, some of the parts and pieces of this passage that we're uh, understanding what's going on here. Go back to verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This was one of the most important uh, celebrations, remembrances that the people of God, the Jewish people would celebrate, but it's Passover. Passover was first instituted as a way of remembering the way that God had worked his saving work for the people when they were in captivity in Egypt. They had been captive for uh, some 400 years and God was working a series of miracles. He was showing himself to the people in a very particular way. And the final way that he showed himself, the final miracle that he did was he asked the people of God to, the Jewish people, to sacrifice a lamb and then to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on their doorpost. And so by putting this blood over the doorpost, it marked uh, those who were uh, God's children, his people. And so when the angel of death came, it uh, took the life of the firstborn male of every home that didn't have the blood on the doorpost. And this was for the people of God, a sign of God's saving work, that there is, um, there is salvation that comes through the blood. And so they remembered from that day forward, they, there was a, a celebration, a, a, a festival, a, a remembrance that God had put into place that they remembered when God had passed over the homes of his people. And so this Passover feast um, festival was, was one of um, great importance. People from all over the land would come. Even people outside of the land would come. And so uh, every year they would travel for Passover. John, in his uh, writing, records for us three Passover uh, celebrations. And so from that, we can infer and understand that the ministry of Jesus was at least two years, right? Kind of started here at the beginning and then lasted all the way because he was crucified near or at Passover. So at least um, uh, two years um, in that because there's three Passovers that were uh, recorded for us. But um, some of you, you know, might uh, kind of wonder, okay, I know that there's a cleansing, a kind of this similar sort of situation happens at the temple in the other gospels. The other gospels, we refer to them as the synoptic gospels, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke record some very different stories, very different things. And um, some, um, I think over time have said that, that, yeah, that's actually just one temple cleansing, one thing that happened. And it happened at the end, but John writes here for a theological perspective. Honestly, I had never really studied it much before. I had kind of heard that and sort of accepted that at what it was. Um, but as I was studying it this week, I found out that I don't think that's the most natural reading. And I don't think that's what most people uh, would arrive at. I mean, just you and me sitting here together, we can look at this. It says, you know, John's been writing very chronologically. He says the next day, the next day, the next day, on the third day, verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum. Now verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He would have gone up to Jerusalem. Anywhere that you went to Jerusalem was going up to Jerusalem. So that would have been, <laughs> certainly would have served if he's coming from Capernaum. It would have been south. We often refer to that as down, but it was up in elevation. So he went up to Jerusalem. So I think the most natural reading for this is that he actually, Jesus began and ended his earthly ministry with going into the temple and correcting and writing some of the worship that was happening. I think there was two temple cleansings. 
Again, some of the language uh, that's used here is a little different. Some of the exchange, the verbal exchange that's said. And again, why couldn't Jesus have done it twice? Like there's a good chance he cleanses it once and then it kind of creeps back in, happens again. And so he does it again at the end of his ministry, right? And who's, uh, who keeps John? John has all sorts of miracles that are signs that were not recorded by the other gospel writers. So I think there's every case to be made that this is a separate uh, situation from the one that we find at the end of his ministry. So Jesus, at the time of Passover, Passover is at hand, he comes to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. This is the central place of worship for the Jewish people. Um, When the temple was built, the first time um, Solomon's temple was built, it says that a cloud descended upon that temple and, and God's glory filled it. It was the place where God's presence, his manifest presence was seen. Theologically, we know God is everywhere. Is God in this room this morning? Yes, he is. Is he in the same place all the time? Yes, he is. But does he show himself in the same way at all times and all places? No, he does not. It's his manifest presence. And so his presence was seen at the temple. And so people would travel to the temple to be near and with and worship God in his presence. Still to this day, I've had the opportunity of traveling to Israel and going to the Temple Mount. And the temple is no longer there, but the Temple Mount still is there. That's the, um, the kind of foundation that Herod built. So it's Herod's Temple Mount. And people, uh, the Jewish people, will go to what's called the Wailing Wall, right? It's as close as they can get. And they pray there and they put prayers in the wall. And the reason is, is because there's this understanding that that is where the presence of God, they're most closely to the presence of God. Now, through scripture and what Jesus has made known to us, do we have to travel to the Wailing Wall to be closest to the presence of God? No, we don't. He's here with us today in this place this morning, just as if we were there on that Temple Mount. But this is the place that his presence was seen. And so Jesus coming to the temple, the place that is central to worship for the Jewish people, he walks in and what does he see? He sees there's like a marketplace that has been set up in the courts, right? It says in the temple, I think best understanding would be the outer courts. It's known as the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is the place that those outside of the Jewish descent, right, Gentiles would come and they would be able to pray and they would be able to contemplate the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true creator God. And they would be able, but but it was no longer for that. It was filled with all of these stalls, all these vendors that were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and there was also money changers. Let me explain why uh, this was needed. You see, one of the things that um, has long been and still is synonymous with worship is sacrifice. And so when people would travel to the temple, they would travel there to worship, and by worshiping, or the way that they would worship is by sacrificing. Right, so they would bring with them their lamb, their oxen, their goat that they had raised, and they would bring it with them to the temple, and then they would sacrifice it. They would give of themselves. It's not the main point of what we're looking at this morning, but it's a good kind of check for us. How much does worship cost us these days? Sometimes, right? Not very much. Or if it does cost us something, we don't want to necessarily give it. But every time that we make the decision to gather in a place like this, every time that we worship, we worship by giving up of our time, giving up of our resources, giving up of our talents. There's, there's worship that happens. And we recognize worship is not just in this room. Worship happens throughout the week. We're gonna kind of talk about that here in a second. But worship is sacrifice. And so the people would travel to Jerusalem to sacrifice. But let's be honest, um, it's kind of a hassle to have to bring that animal with you, Right? Like, I don't know about you, but when my family goes to Noah's Ark in the summer, we have a serious debate about whether or not we want to bring a cooler, 
right? And fill it with sandwiches and bring our own Gatorade and our own kind of drinks and chips and all that um, because it's so much cheaper. But it's like a lot of work, right? Because we've got to lug that cooler up there. We've got to fill it all up. We've got to get all the supplies. And then we've got to like, at some point, we've got to leave the water park. We've got to go out to the, uh, to the car, right? Get the cooler. We've got to fight for that, uh, that picnic table or sit there on the curb or wherever, you know. And it's like, man, it'd just be easier if we just buy food in the park. But if you've ever kind of fallen into that trap, you know, buying food in the park is like, you got to pay a premium dollar. Like, that's not a $5 burger. That's a $15 burger, okay? And it doesn't taste like a $15 burger. It tastes like a $3 burger that they're charging $15 for, right? Like if you've ever been in the airport and you need a bottle of water, you're willing to shell out $7 for it. Like when are we selling out $7 for water? Like that's crazy. But captive audience, if you need it, you're gonna spend it. You're gonna pay for it. That's exactly what's happening here. People recognize, oh man, families traveling from a long ways away coming to... Jerusalem, it sure is a lot easier if we don't have to bring the oxen. Why don't we just buy one there, right? We'll just go to the, we'll go to the food court there and we'll just get it there. And that's what they're doing here. They go to the temple and, and even out of convenience, it's not even down the street. It's not even the next town over. I mean, it's right there at the temple. So you don't even have to care for that thing. You walk up, you can buy that oxen and then you walk right over and you give it to the priest and you can sacrifice it right there very conveniently. And what's happening is there's a little profit that's being made. The temple is gaining off, the, the, the priests and the leaders there, are the vendors are gaining. There's like, there's profit margin all over the place. There's, there's, there's this profit that's being made from this. Additionally, one of the things that's also happening, right? They're trying to, um, if the people are traveling for Passover, what a better time than to uh, collect the taxes. All males over 20 had to give a, a tax once a year of a half shekel, um, Coincidentally, that's why Jesus told Peter, remember that he they collected a shekel from the, um, from the mouth of the, the fish, that coin from the fish, and he says, go pay the tax for you and for me. A lot of times people would pair up and pay their taxes together because um, it was a half shekel, just kind of interesting. But there, there was certain coinage that you had to have. So you couldn't just bring whatever coins you had. So if you're traveling from a distance, you're coming with different currency, right? Foreign currency, other, other coins, they needed to be changed out. And what they're doing in this is they are making a profit, right? They're changing out the money. Sure, I'll, I'll take your coins and give you the right coins. And there's a slight little, you know, cut that I'm taking in that. And so that's what's going on. And Jesus, like there might be some malpractice going on. There might be like a little bit of gouging that's happening. That might be what's going on, but that's not the main thing that Jesus is concerned with now. Notice what he does. He says he makes a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. He's driving the sheep and the oxen with this whip out of the, out of the temple. I don't know about you, that never made it on my flannel graph growing up. I didn't see that, right? That, there's no VeggieTales uh, kind of, you know, cartoon with that, right? Where, where Paul Grape is like kind of driving out, you know, all the, all the whatever, you know, with that whip. Um, if you didn't grow up in like Christian subculture, you are totally okay. Don't uh, like, <laughs> you're better for it, okay? Like, let's just be honest. But uh, there's this, this sign, this picture that we don't often think of Jesus, right? We think of Jesus meek and mild, right? We think of him as this lowly shepherd, the servant. But here he is showing his authority. He makes this whip and he is a righteous anger taking over, driving him because 
they have made worship into something it shouldn't be. He was 100% correct in doing this, right? This was not sin. This wasn't um, improper. Um, this, is, this is a right action that he was doing. In addition to driving out the sheep and oxen, what does it say? It says he poured out the coins and he overturned their tables. Like, I'm sure those disciples were sitting back there like, you know, eyes, eyes super wide. Like, oh my goodness, like what are we watching? You know, he like walks up and he's just dumping out bags of money, flipping tables. Like he's making quite a scene. Why? Well, he looks at the, I don't know why the pigeon sellers get singled out. He says he looks at those who sold pigeon. He's like, take those things away. And they're like, got it. You know, like by that point, he's driven out the sheep. He's, he's flipped the tables. They're like, sure, I'll take my pigeons and go. You know, like they're, they're kind of like grabbing all of them. But then the most important thing, look what he says. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. You're taking this and making it into something that it shouldn't be. And here's the reality of what the situation was. This is why Jesus was acting and responding the way that he was, is because they had made and were making worship about them. It was about them. It was about their convenience. It was about their system, their structure, right? It was about their profit. What am I gonna gain from this? See, they took something that was meant to be for all the people. Even, it was even happening in the court of the Gentiles. Like this was the place that the people far from God were supposed to be able to come and get near to God and be able to observe and here you have a Gentile trying to pray, trying to worship in that court of the Gentiles and next to him, like there's this, you know, this, this lamb that's bleeding. There's like this, you know, money that's being exchanged, all the coins, the, like all the commerce that's happening. I mean, it's like this thriving marketplace right there in the house of worship. It was all about them. They took what was supposed to be about the father, the father's house, and they made it about them. They made it a house of trade. And again, wide-eyed disciples standing back, they look at it and they remember, they think about, this is 69, Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house will consume me. They're watching the passion of their savior, their Messiah, their rabbi, right? They're seeing this zeal that consumes him for the house of God. He was changing, making it the way that it should be. And so I wonder this morning, I think the, the natural question for us, if we're gonna hear what God's word says, understand what it means, and then apply it to our hearts, we need to ask the question, what is at the center of our worship? Or better yet, more specifically, have we placed ourselves at the center of our worship? Let's be clear, again, worship is not just coming in this room and singing songs. That's certainly, you know, we call that worship, and it is, right? We call this a worship center. We call our our service, I don't call it a sanctuary, by the way. Um, certainly don't call it an auditorium. You're not here to like observe a show. We call this a worship center. I don't call that a narthex either. That's a lobby. I don't know what a narthex is, okay? And so if you ever call it a narthex, I'm gonna say, what? Like, bless you? I don't know, like, you know. But, but this is a worship center. We have a worship service. This is when the, the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, we come together on a regular rhythm. Every Sunday, we gather in this place to begin our weeks together, centering our focus, our understanding, our knowledge, our thoughts, our efforts on the worship of Jesus Christ. That is the sole purpose of why we gather here. That is the central reason that we are here in this place this morning is we are trying to declare the worth of Jesus that he is due. But this is not the only place that we worship. We worship throughout our week. We worship at work. We worship at home. We worship in our thoughts. We worship in our actions. Worship is giving worth to something. And if we're honest, we oftentimes 
take worship and we worship ourselves in the things that we do, right? We place ourselves at the center of our worship. Even our corporate worship can be about us. I mean, how many fights have been fought in churches over the style or this way or the, you know, the, the kind of structure of the corporate worship gathering? But the reality is this, is here's a good check on if you've made the corporate worship about you. If you leave and you have the thought like, man, I just didn't really get as much out of that as I was hoping to this morning. Could it be that maybe you came here with the wrong purpose of you trying to get something out of it? Really, you're coming to worship to give something away. You're giving something to the Lord. I'll say it this way, that you are not the consumer of the worship service. God is. Like, we are here for him. We are here to serve and to glorify him, to worship him. And so as we gather, as we serve, as, we, as the team is up here, they're not even trying. Like, yes, they're trying to lead you. Yes, they're trying to give um, you, know, to, to, to give you uh, an encouragement and, and lead well. Even as I serve, I'm trying to give you the word of God, but I'm ultimately doing it for the Lord. Like at the end of the day, whether or not you receive something, it's like I'm trying to serve and honor the Lord in this. And so we worship unto the Lord. He is the center of our worship. That's why we say around here, our mission is to glorify God, that's worship, by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So yes, we want disciples made, but we want them made unto the glory of God. It's the worship that drives our ministry. It's the worship that drives that mission. We are first vertical before we are horizontal. That Vertical focus drives us to our horizontal. Like we want, yes, you should walk away with something. I hope you are changed and being impacted and changed through that. That is, like if that's not happening, I think it's a miss, but I think it has a lot more to do with our hearts than maybe the way and the structure of kind of how we're doing it. If we're centering our focus, our thoughts, our worship on God, then we will be impacted by it. And so let me ask it again in another way. If Jesus were to show up today to the temple of your heart, Right, Because scripture says that our hearts have become like a temple unto the Lord. He indwells. If you are a follower of Jesus, the spirit is indwelling you. You are now like a temple for the Lord. If Jesus shows up to the temple of your heart this morning, what is he finding? What is he cleaning up? What is he redirecting? What is he changing? Where are we centering worship on ourselves? It's a good check for all of us. We all need this correction. The people of God here, the Jews certainly did. Right, They had made it about something that it wasn't meant to be. Let's continue on. Look at verse 18. Let's see what happens next. So Jesus, again, he flips tables. He drives away the animals. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, hey, Jesus, you just made a pretty big mess. Can we see some ID? Like, what are some credentials here? Like, what are you, what gives you the right, right? And Jesus answered them, here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Here's the thing, when we submit to Jesus' authority, it reminds us, it shows us, it changes our worship and it takes the focus off of me. Secondly, when I submit to the authority of Jesus, it changes my worship and it puts the focus on him. When Jesus is my authority, the focus is back where it should be, it's on him. Jesus is meant to be the center of our worship. And see, this is what is so crazy about what is happening here. Like they have all these animals, 
right? And all these structures and all these rituals kind of in place, and many of them, God had like instituted, right? God was the one who set up the temple. God was the one who told them to sacrifice. God got all that going. They had kind of morphed it into sort of a twisted version of what he had set up. But it was God who had originally put that in place. And now all of that was never meant to fulfill, right? We just studied Hebrews all summer long. And so this should be fresh on our minds. If you were here for Hebrews, then this should be super fresh to us. If it's not, like go read the book of Hebrews. It's all about the temple was looking forward to Jesus. The sacrifices were looking forward to Jesus. The priests were looking forward to Jesus. And so here in this moment, all of the sacrifices, all of the temple, all of it was meant to point to Jesus. Jesus walks on and he's like, what are you doing? You're missing it. Like I'm here. The boss is here. The authority is here. Your savior is here. Like everything you've been waiting for is here and they miss it. Furthermore, they question him. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I love how wise and genius Jesus is in all of his responses. John loves the double meeting. And so he certainly records this response from Jesus, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. See, they obviously took that to be the physical temple. They weren't thinking about Jesus's body being the temple So they're standing there in this temple, and this temple is like magnificent. Like Herod's temple was beautiful. He had gone over the top to try and appease and and to please the Jews in this. And it's taken, they just said, 46 years to build it. They continue to build it, I think, for another 20 beyond this. All right? And so they it's taken 46 years to get to this place. And so Jesus says, Hey, you want a sign? Tear down the temple. Then I'm going to build it up in three days again, and then you'll know that I have the authority to do what I just did. And that's like a great, like, it's like, well, what are they supposed to do? They're not going to tear down the temple. They can't tear down the temple. So he kind of like catches them a little bit, but then they're like, it's taken 46 years. You think you're going to rebuild this in three days? I don't think so, right? Like that's not, that's not going to happen. But then we get John as narrator, right? He kind of pulls back and it's like, nah, he's not talking physically here. He's not talking physically. He's talking spiritually about his body. Look at verse 21. John in his very Morgan Freeman narrator voice, right? He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Do you guys like hear Morgan Freeman? I sure do, right? <laughs> but he was speaking about, I can't do a good Morgan Freeman, otherwise I would. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John is narrating for us. He's like, it's not about the temple, it's about his body. This is what it's about. He says, therefore, he was raised from the dead and his disciples figured this out. They remembered. I don't know, was it a week? Was it a month? Sometime after Jesus was raised from the dead, like they're like sitting there and like, oh, do you remember what he said when we were at the temple that first time that he like cleansed it? He said that he was going to destroy it and that he was going to rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body, right? He was crucified on a Friday. Any part of a day counts as a day. So three days later on Sunday, he was risen from the grave. He was restored. Jesus is at the center of the worship. Jesus is like, it's not about this temple. It's about me. You want a sign? Look at me. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be destroyed, crucified. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. That's why I have the authority to do what I'm doing right now. He is showing his authority here, and he's giving them this as the sign. Coincidentally, it's interesting, you know, uh, later at the trial, there's a bunch of false accusations that are made of Jesus at the trial of his death. And he was actually misquoted here. Notice what he says. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. When they quoted him later, they said, Jesus said that he will destroy the temple and that he will build it up three days later. But that's not what he said. You might miss it a little bit because of the translation. We see it in the English, but, but in the original language, it's a second person. He's saying, you destroy this temple and then I will build it back up. 
So he's not saying he's gonna destroy it. They accused him of destroying or saying he was gonna destroy the temple. That's not what he said. They twisted his words. He's saying, hey, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. What ended up happening? They destroyed the temple. They destroyed his body. Three days later, he was raised to life. See, here's the thing. The disciples realized this later, remembered the saying, and what does it say they do? It says that they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, all the words that he had said, all the scripture that he had quoted, all these things came into light, and they're like, man, we believe. We believe he is who he says he is. You see, proper worship is always centered on the work of Jesus. Later they remembered and they believed and they worshiped Jesus. They had him at the center. When we submit to the authority of Jesus, it realigns our worship to the place that it should be on the Son of God. Why is worship centered on Jesus? Because that is the most important thing, that is the most important thing that he ever did was the work that he did upon the cross. That is why he came. Scripture tells us, and our experience confirms it, that this world is broken, right? Like sin has entered this world. We live in a world marred by sin. We are marred by sin. Our sin separates us from our perfect creator, God. But Jesus, in his love and his kindness, came as a man, sent by the Father, lived perfectly, died in our place. His blood was shed for you and me. We never had a chance. Our, we don't, there's no sacrifice that you and I can give. There's nothing that you can do to earn back a right relationship with God. You have no way of paying the debt that is owed for you. That's why Jesus came and he stepped in and he says, I'm gonna pay it. I'm gonna pay it with my blood, with my perfect life. And so he died the death we deserve. He lived the life that we never could and he was raised up by God in a miraculous way. And that is at the center of our worship. Church, how many of the songs or all the themes that we just sang about, how much are we talking about Jesus and what he's done and his work in my heart and my life? That is the highest and greatest place that we can center our worship is on Jesus. That is where all worship belongs. And I think one of the problems or one of the things that distorts our worship is when we have a low view of Christ, when we have a low view of God, we need to have a, a better and a right perspective of God. A high view of God leads to a high response of worship right? The more proper our understanding of God, the more proper our worship is. If we don't understand God, we can't worship him. I'm just telling you, that's one of the reasons that we need to come in here. How many times, and I've said this before, how many times do we come in here and we're reminded of truths that we already knew, but we forget them. We go out of this place, we get about our, our weeks and we go about our way. And then all of a sudden it's Saturday and we've like had a week and we haven't spent any time like with God or with Jesus in the word. And, and we come back in here and we're like, oh yeah, God is amazing. Right? Jesus is worthy of my worship. And then we go out and we do it all over again. Like we need this. This is a good rhythm for us to be in this place. Why? Because it repositions, recenters our worship where it should be on the person of Jesus Christ. He is meant to be at the center of our worship. Let's continue on. Let's look at verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What did Jesus know was in man? He knew that in man was broken heart. And so he was not able or willing at that time to entrust himself to men because he knew that they were, had a broken heart, 
right? That their hearts are distorted. And so what happens when we submit to Jesus? Well, Jesus changes my heart. We all need our hearts to be changed by Jesus. When I submit to Jesus, Jesus changes my heart. Listen, there are many, I think, that believe like these Jews here in Jerusalem believed. Notice what it says there. It says that when he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name. When? When they saw the signs that he was doing. So they saw some miraculous things that Jesus is doing, and they're like, man, I believe in that guy. I believe that he is something special, that he's sent by God, that he's a prophet, like whatever it might be. But notice it wasn't a saving faith, I would say, because it wasn't a submissive faith. They believed in the signs, but they weren't truly believing in him. They weren't willing to submit and to follow and to, and to trust in him fully, right? So they believed that Jesus was doing some miraculous stuff. They didn't believe who he was. And so Jesus on his part says he did not entrust himself to them. Another way of saying it is the people believed in him. Jesus didn't believe in the people. Why did he not believe in the people? He says he doesn't need anyone to bear witness, right? No one has to tell him. He doesn't need convincing. He himself knows what's in man. What's in man? A broken, twisted heart that deceives. That is what we are born with. That's the way that we are wired. That is where our propensity is, is to wander, is to go. We just sang that, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? Like this is what he sees. And so we need a new heart. How do we get a new heart? We submit to our king. We submit to Jesus. See, the reality is many of us believe that Jesus is something special. We believe that he is not like anyone else, but we don't believe that he is the king. We don't believe that he is the Lord. Not in action anyways, not in practice. Because so many of us, we want things to happen in a different way, right? How many times have you said, but God, can you not do it in this timing? God, I wish that you would do it in this way. God, I don't agree with you in your decision to let it happen like that. God, I don't trust that you're going to get it done in this way, right? How many times are we not submitting to his leadership and his guiding and his wisdom in it? But that's exactly what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to submit to his authority. So Jesus shows up at the temple and they've come up with a system that makes it very convenient for families, right? Very convenient to be able, and provides a profit and provides a way to, I'm sure the temple was getting a cut and they're you know, increasing, but we can make the temple more beautiful, right? We can, we can make these things happen. They're doing it their way. And Jesus is like, no, don't do it your way, do it my way. The worship is about me, it's not about you. It's about me. Come back to me. Focus on me. Submit to me. Do it in my way. Listen, we have an authority issue. There are many times, right, when we don't think the boss is around. What did I say? Like, things get a little off, right? We kind of figure out our own way. We get a little loose. We get a little, like, creative. We get a little lazy. We get a little sort of selfish in that. There's lots of ways that we can respond, but when we understand Jesus is the authority, and when we understand that he is present and he is here, our worship changes. We get our eyes off of ourselves, we get our eyes on Christ, and we submit to him as the king that he is, and in doing so, our hearts are transformed, our hearts are changed. Now all of a sudden, we're not like disciplining ourselves to do, now all of a sudden, we're desiring it to do it. It's like, how could I do it any other way? He's the king. Why would I want to do it my way? I don't know. I'm going to do it his way, right? Like it changes us. It transforms us. And that's what we're seeing. They weren't willing to do that. 
I would tell you this this morning. If you've never placed your trust in faith in Jesus as your Savior, today could be the day of salvation for you. This is what he calls all of us to do, to trust him, to put him at the center of life, to worship him, to trust the work that he's done, that he's done something that you can't do. You're not meant to earn it back or achieve it. All the striving, all the working will never, will never achieve what he has done in his perfect work on the cross. And so, in understanding that, we allow that to transform, change our hearts, and we respond and worship to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your authority over us. Our God in heaven, we recognize that you are the king, that you are God, God, that you made us, that you know us. Lord, more than that, your word tells us that you love us. You came, you sent your son, God, out of love for us. You so loved the world that you gave your son, Jesus, as the sacrifice, God, the gift for us, for our sin. And so, Lord, we respond to you. God, we give you praise. We give you thanks. Lord, we worship you. We declare that you are worthy. God, that you are great, that you are mighty, that you are present, that you are faithful, that you are working. God, that you are all-knowing. God, that you are powerful, that you are able. God, that you care that you have come near, God, that you have a plan. God, we acknowledge all of these things and more. God, we pour out our worship and praise to you for who you are. God, you are worthy of it. Would you receive the worship of our hearts, God, the worship of our mouths, God, the worship of our minds, our, our souls, Lord. Would you receive it? And we know that you do because of the work that you've done in Jesus Christ. And so we respond to you. God, thank you. We look to you. We, we submit to you. God, you are our king. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.